Welcome to Business Books and Company. Every month, we read great business books and explore how they can help us navigate our careers. Read along with us so you can become a stronger leader within your company or a more adept entrepreneur. This month, we read Tape Sucks, Inside Data Domain, a Silicon Valley growth story by Frank Slootman. Data Domain was an innovator in the data backup market, and Slootman was its CEO from 2003 until its acquisition in 2009 by EMC. Tape Sucks is a series of short advice vignettes from one successful startup CEO to others managing high-growth ventures. In each short chapter, Slootman tackles one subject and tries to get his point across with an anecdote from Data Domain. But before we get into the details of the book, let's introduce ourselves. Hi, I'm David Short. I'm a product manager and former consultant. And hi, I'm Eli Mitchell, and I am a management consultant. And I'm David Kopeck. I'm an assistant professor of computer science. So let's start with the author. Who is Frank Slootman? So Frank was originally born in the Netherlands and grew up there. He studied business and economics at the Netherlands School of Economics uh, at Erasmus University in Rotterdam. And then he moved to the U.S. Uh, after his, his studies. So he tried to work at IBM, but was apparently rejected 10 times, uh, ultimately getting his first job in the corporate planning department at Burroughs which was one of the um, bunch, uh, Burroughs, Univac, NCR, Control Data, Honeywell, uh, IBM challengers. He quickly shifted to sales, marketing, monetization, and technology. After Burroughs, he worked at uh, CompuWare, which ultimately bought a Dutch company, Uniface, and sent him there to lead that company as the, as the GM. He then went on to Borland, where he was a product manager as they transitioned from consumer indirect to enterprise direct uh, software sales. And then he left Borland to become president and CEO of Data Domain in 2003. So this was about two years after Data Domain had been founded. He led that company through its IPO in 2007 and subsequent acquisition by EMC in 2009 for $2.4 billion. He then stayed on at EMC for a couple of years where he served as the head of the backup and recovery systems division. After that, he became the chairman and CEO of ServiceNow from 2011 to 2017, um, also taking them through an IPO, and was most recently or continues to be the chairman and CEO of Snowflake, which he started working at in April 2019, which IPO'd earlier this year. And so between um, ServiceNow and uh, Snowflake, he has a you know, $100 billion current market cap company and $73 billion market cap company that he's, that he's taken public in the last, I guess, almost a decade. He also leads Invisible Hands LLC, which is his personal investment advisory entity, and he has served on numerous boards of directors. So I think we should take a brief moment to talk about tape, because the book is called Tape Sucks. So tape is actually a magnetic medium that goes on a reel. And for any of us older than 25 years old, we remember tape mediums. We remember VCRs. We remember audio cassette tapes. And actually, the tape that's used for backups is not that dissimilar. The issue with it is that it happens very sequentially, right? You're winding the reel. It's going through the machine, and you can only go to a certain point if you actually wind to that point. And so it's good for sequential writes and sequential reads of data, but it's not very good for what's called random access, which is where we want to suddenly go to a certain piece of data. We don't want to have to wait and go through all the previous pieces to get to it. And tape has traditionally been used as a computer backup solution. In fact, you might be surprised to know that some of the first personal computers, including the original Apple I and the first Apple IIs, actually used audio cassette tapes to transfer files from one machine to another. So tape has a long history. It's been in the computing industry for a long time. And you can kind of maybe understand why some people think it sucks, because it's so great for going sequentially, but it's very hard to get to a very specific point on the tape. So this company, Data Domain, what were they doing and how did it relate to tape? Data Domain was focused on deduplication solutions for disk-based backup. And so um, I think this was essentially a disruptive technology within the space where they were both introducing new technology and um, increasing the efficiency of the technology. And so it was sort of a, a 10x improvement over the, the tape capabilities that existed in the past. And so Data Domain really served as a, an alternative to that traditional you know, tape-based system for, for storing all of, your, all of your information. 
Is there anything else we should know about the the specifics of what Data Domain was doing, Kopak? Yeah, so I just say that they were using therefore hard drive technology to actually do these backups. And by eliminating having to repeatedly back up the same information, the deduplication part, they could do that very efficiently. Whereas with the older tape technology, what you would always do is you'd record the entire thing you wanted to back up all over again. And usually you do your backup like once a day. So like every evening, these backups would happen and you'd record the entire set of data over again on a tape. And the tapes are okay for sequential writes, but if you wanted to just look at specific pieces, just the pieces that changed, then they were not very efficient for that. And so if you wanted to do that on hard drives, you had to have a good way of detecting where are the parts that changed. And so that was what was disruptive about their technology is that they were able to see just the changes and just record the changes instead of having to record the whole thing, therefore making these more expensive devices, because hard drives are more expensive than tape, viable for actually doing recording and actually faster than tape recording. Got it. It's, it's funny. My uh, first job out of college, we actually did use a tape system for backup. And so every night they would run the uh, backup and one of the employees would actually have to take it home with them so that in the event the building burned down overnight, we would not lose all of the data that we were you know, responsible for. And custodying for, you know, our customers and things like that. So it's, it's funny to think that even in 2009, you know, long after data domain had been around, some companies were still, you know, in the, in the stone ages with tape. A good throwback for a short. <laughs> was that, was that the same employee that had to do that every night or did you all like alternate? It was the same one. As far as I know, I was never asked to take it home. At least <laughs> you, you were never given the responsibility of all of the company's data. <laughs> only a backup, only a backup. <laughs> so when Slootman joins Data Domain, the company already exists. He wasn't one of the founders. Why did they bring him in as a CEO? What skill sets did he bring to the table? So I think Slootman has a strong product and sales background. I think he had he had run businesses in the Netherlands effectively for for CompuWare, and he'd been you know building products uh, in in the space as well. And so I think it was really kind of giving him a, a real opportunity, you know, he, he had never been an executive before. And so, you know, putting him from, a, he'd been like sort of an SVP, I think, uh, was, his, was his prior title before being put into that, that CEO role. But at the same time, bringing in more experience from him, because the people who had originally founded Data Domain, uh, it was really out of a, a venture capital accelerator kind of experience. So it was really a professor, I believe, who had developed the technology and was working sort of as an entrepreneur in residence or something along those lines at a, at a venture capital company and through there had, had sort of founded the company. But now that they were starting to have a real proven model and strategy, they brought in Slootman to really execute. And so he actually says that in the towards the end of the book, he talks about the fact that he didn't really set the strategy for data domain. They already had built the technology. They already knew what they needed to do. He was just the one to actually, you know, scale out a sales organization and really build it into a, you know, high profile company again, eventually going public and, and then getting acquired for, for billions of dollars. Yeah, I think I think we'll certainly get into this, but that that was interesting aspect to me um, because he didn't he didn't previously have the experience. And then it seemed like so much of the success of data domain as a company was due to having a really great product that was needed at the time and that worked. And Slootman certainly helped build out the sales organization. And I'm sure that we'll get into kind of all of all that he talked about sales and sales strategy. But that seemed to be really his value add. There were other aspects of his tenure at CEO uh, that I think we'll uh, highlight as well that just seemed to be mistakes that you wouldn't expect a CEO to make, right? Like he, he underinvested in back office functions and in managers and such because like, he coming from product and sales just didn't understand the role that managers play. And that's just like, you know, to me, when I was reading that, I was like, I would expect, you would expect that when they're pulling in a CEO for this role, that that's something that they already know, given that he wasn't a founder CEO. So I, I don't think that there was too much detail in the book as to exactly how he found himself in the role, but it did seem interesting to me not being a founder and then still having some of those realizations along the way. So he joins Data Domain, and obviously they brought him in to fix some problems. What were some of those challenges that Data Domain was facing that he was able to overcome? And maybe tell us about some of the challenges that came up during his tenure as CEO. 
I think the key challenge that I remember him highlighting from the start was just that they had to enter another fundraising round per the common story of C- of startup companies. Uh, they were about to run out of the funding that they had, so they really needed to aggressively pursue that. I don't know, uh, Short or Kopak, if you caught any more beyond that in why he was pulled in for the fundraising, but I did note that that seemed to be his focus very early on and really take up a lot of his time was just how to ensure that they had enough funding in order to continue working as a company. Yeah, so I think that fundraising is definitely a, a big part of it. So I, I believe they'd, they'd raised a Series A in 2002 and they, they, the funds were, were running out. And so they did need to get their, their Series B closed in order to, to have runway to, to continue to succeed. And one thing he actually goes into to, to, in some detail is that he thinks it's really important to be super conservative with money until you figured out your actual model. And so if you don't have revenue, if you haven't figured out like a what he ultimately calls like a money machine, which is, you know, something that, that uh, people pay more than, than what it costs you to, to create, then you should be really conservative. You should keep your runway for as long as you can. But then once you have figured out that model, then raise as much money as you can, throw gasoline on the fire and, you know, grow and scale as quickly as you can once you do have that, that proven model. All right, let's, so let's talk a bit about the arc of Data Domain and how it evolved during Slootman's tenure. Eventually, Data Domain got purchased by EMC. How do we get there? How do we get from him joining Data Domain to Data Domain eventually going through to becoming part of EMC? So he joined in 2003, and he essentially implemented the sales structure the, and started to really you know, grow um, the company's revenue very rapidly and you know, compete directly with a lot of those competitors that we were talking about in terms of the history with, with tape. From there, they IPO'd Data Domain in 2007, raising $110 million. And from there, it then became sort of a, a, a bidding war, frankly, for, for Data Domain in terms of the EMC acquisition. And so NetApp was actually the first company to try and acquire Data Domain. EMC then came in and matched NetApp's offer NetApp then raised, I think, and then EMC, I think, raised from there. Um, so anyway, it was it was a, a a real like aggressive bidding situation for for two pretty direct competitors trying to you know consolidate the market. Ultimately, EMC did raise their offer again and made it an all cash offer, and so that was was how they ended up winning the day. But interestingly, they also talked about the fact that NetApp was a mixed cash and um, equity offer, and the NetApp stock actually skyrocketed probably in part because of this EMC acquisition of data domain, you know, uh, giving new valuations to the market. And so had they held on to uh, the NetApp uh, offer, they would have actually made more money because the the, the stock actually appreciated. I guess, you know, probably depends on, on when you sell and all those things. But it was uh, from there, Slootman could have actually left, but he says that he really did want the, the company to continue to succeed. He wanted to make sure that he could preserve the culture that he'd built at Data Domain. And so he did stay on at EMC after the acquisition for about 18 months before then, then moving on to ServiceNow. Was, the, was there anything else in the arc you wanted to cover, Kopech? I think we'll get into it later. But one of the reasons he went on to EMC and stayed there was he wanted to protect the culture of Data Domain. And we'll, I think later on, we'll have a nice discussion about corporate culture and why it differed from EMC. But Slootman was really a salesperson, right? And one of his key and important factors in making Data Domain successful was his ability to lead a sales team. So let's talk a bit about Slootman's suggestions around sales that he provides in the book. Quickly, I just want to add a few points on what Short had explained earlier with the IPO and the bidding war. We, ha- we haven't talked about the book setup itself in too much detail yet, but it is a short book. It's short described that it's kind of written as blog posts with each chapter. I think it's total 100 pages. One thing that I do actually really appreciate about the book is how much is packed in and how just transparent and honest he is in sharing what the IPO and bidding war was like. The key things that I like that he explained about the IPO was that the point of the IPO was not to raise money necessarily. The point of the IPO was as a marketing tool in order to 
give them a, a bigger name and for their customers to become uh, more assured of their legitimacy. So that, that was something that, you know, I, it had never been described for me in such clear terms of it's not always just for fundraising. There are, can be other benefits to this IPO. And then also when he was talking about the bidding war with NetApp and EMC, uh, and as Short said, that they lost out on potential value because of the stock offer. You know, he was like, yeah, but if anyone actually believed that, then they could have just like taken the cash from EMC and invested in NetApp, right? Like, so just the the explanation as to why they made the decisions that they did, I thought were really helpful. From a sales perspective, I think a lot of the book talked about sales and uh, kind of his sales strategy and philosophy, and then also about just like how to manage a sales team. I think some of some of the challenges that he highlighted was that their end customers are large enterprises and large enterprises, uh, specifically like in the IT department that are managing uh, companies' uh, data backup systems, and they are notoriously risk averse, right? So it really comes down to having a good product, but also having a brand name because they're not going to go against uh, HP Dell, right? Something that they are reassured with for something new and trendy. One small thing that he called out there was actually the company name of Data Domain was made people believe that they were an old company so that they weren't new and young and trendy. And that actually worked for their customer base, which is which is just interesting thinking about how, you know, you can always tell the name of a startup now because it's always some new name and usually like is lacking vowels and such, which can work if you're an app and you're trying to get Gen Z and millennials to download you. Uh, but in the case of trying to acquire large enterprises, having a boring company name like data domain was actually really valuable for them. Then one of one of the other aspects that he talked about quite a bit was just having the direct channel to your end customer. So I, I think that they had a few options of did they want to sell through an OEM or do a partnership with OEM, something like EMC, or did they want to go direct to the end customer and have the end customer request their product from the retailer or from the OEM? And he really said that like the power of a, a company is to the ability to get directly to the end customer. So that was something that they really focused on at Data Domain. Yeah, and I think I, I have the quote that I think really highlights the... Uh... The publicly traded, you know, aspect that you were talking about, which is large enterprises are conservative and risk averse. They like to buy from suppliers whose names have two, three, or four letters: HP, IBM, or Dell. So um, I think I think that is something that I've I've heard maybe once or twice, but it's not something that you think about that often. That the IPO can be just a um, signaling mechanism to your customers that you are, you know, a well-established corporation and you know you've been audited by public accounting firms and things like that that you know they can really trust you as a partner in a way that they can't necessarily some silicon valley startup that came out you know 3 years ago yeah the the reassurance that you're still going to be around in 5 years when they have an issue and they need tech support from you right and we're talking about IT buyers here. And IT buyers are actually, ironically, famous for being conservative. You think about the 80s slogan, you can't get fired for buying IBM, right? So they really need to have legitimacy amongst this pretty conservative bunch, actually, of, of purchasers. So let's go from sales to hiring. And we're going kind of quick fire here because it's a quick fire book. So what's Lutman's advice around hiring? Oh my gosh, I hated this. <laughs> um, so he, he talked about hiring athletes, not resumes, which I, I actually forget when this book came out, but it doesn't, it doesn't seem like revolutionary hiring advice. Um, I feel like I've hear this all the time. You know, you're doing the airport test and you're just hiring the person that you want to hang out with and you trust that people are going, they can learn the skills on the job or you can teach them. If they're passionate about it, they'll figure it out. And I, you know, one, one thing that I do think made sense for this is as, as a startup, he was saying a challenge is that you can't land a candidate who meets the resume criteria um, as you, the startup, are not yet good enough to have a good catch yourself, right? So that, 
that did make sense um, in, in terms of you're not going to be able to get the ideal candidate. So how do you find a candidate who's good enough? And it was all about just like finding somebody who's passionate and going to be able to learn on the job. And I think what I, what I just didn't like about this is how much this opens itself up to bias. I I really hate the thought of, oh, just find like the good person without having really any criteria. And I don't think that he really addressed that. He just kind of talked about athletes over and over again for the hiring process. On the other hand, some people could argue that there's another kind of bias that goes from being too much concentrated on resumes, where if you're you're overly focused on resumes, you end up being overly focused on credentials and prior work experience, and you don't give somebody a chance who really might not have those credentials, they might not have that prior work experience, but actually could be great for the role. Yeah. And I get the feeling that some of it comes from his own background as an immigrant, that while he had gone to, I think, a you know really great school in the Netherlands, no one in the US had heard of it. And so when he tried to you know, knock down the doors of, of big tech companies, no one was really interested. And he ended up having to go to like a smaller firm because he, you know, didn't grow up in the US and didn't have the connections and the ability to get in that way. So I think he also sort of saw that in, in other people, you know, giving them that opportunity that, that he had ultimately gotten of, of coming in from, from outside and then being able to, you know, learn quickly in the companies and, and really succeed. But I, I, do, I do think you're, you're right also that there was a little bit of a like, you know, you know, you know it when you see it, who's the, who are the who are the good hard workers? And Kopec had already started to talk about this in terms of the culture, but I, I think it is, you know, tightly entwined with with some of the cultural values that he ends up talking about later in terms of the data domain people he talked about as being, I'm forgetting what the the term is, but I think it was like low social or something like that, and the the EMC executives being high social. And so the the data domain people weren't, you know, going out for beers after work with each other. They weren't like focused on, you know, the relationships and, and you know, the uh, how, how's your family doing stuff. They were focused on execution within the workplace. And that was how they like assessed each other versus EMC had more of a, you know, a relationship culture. And he, he felt like that was bad in terms of, you know, progress that um, for data domain, it was, you know, purely how effective are you at, at doing your job? That's going to move you up versus at EMC. It was, you know, do you have the sponsorship of the senior executive? And, you know, they like to go out for a beer with you. Yeah, I, I've got the the quote for that. It was low socials and high socials. I remember it. this was interesting to me because I felt like he very much put everybody in a box from uh, both companies. But he says, for example, former data domain execs were mostly so-called low socials. They didn't they don't value relationships per se. They value what people bring to the business instead. Data domain people did not hang out together after work much. We served in the same war together, but that was it. EMC executives, on the other hand, were high socials. EMC has a relationship culture that functions on whom you know. It is a 30-year-old company, so senior staff have a lot of continuity and years in the company. EMC people solve for career longevity, while data domain people just wanted to get just wanted the doors to be open the next day. But I, I agree from the hiring perspective. I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't think that the answer is that you only hire on credentials, but I also don't think that the answer is that you only hire on this athletes, not resumes. And I'm actually excited for our book next month because I think that there will probably be a little more on this HR side. I agree with you, Eli. I was kind of playing devil's advocate a little bit, but it is a good segue into talking more about Slootman's opinions on corporate culture, because there's really a lot of that in the latter half of the book. So I have a good quote maybe that we could start out with. So this is from Sloot. This is a direct quote from Slootman. People learn behavior based on how an organization reacts to what they see around them. Be aware, just condoning, and he puts in parentheses through benign neglect, sanctions behavior. In other words, he's saying that the way that you behave in the corporation really leads to long-term outcomes and that you need to be really careful about every bit of behavior that you're even allowing or looking the other way around because it can really result in some fundamental changes or fundamental uh, identities for the company. Yeah, I, I, I could be wrong, but I think that came from when he started to talk about his, uh, his recipe. So um, respect excellence, customer, integrity, performance, and execution as the 
um, sort of core foundational values of of data domain. And I think it was respect that um, you know you were getting into there is, is where where he talks about the fact that like they like people say respect. Everyone says you should respect people, but really showing respect is taking action when people do things that are not respectful. And that you know the values around sort of honesty and you know candor and things like that were were really powerful and important to him. And he felt that you know if you lose that, then you kind of can lose everything else. So the ability to really focus on the respect for each other, but also the respect for the company and the the, the values. And so, like if you make a mistake, owning it, you know, it's, it's okay. Like don't be against mistakes, but do be against like people who try to cover things up and and you know don't have that that core respect. Yeah, I do think he he probably spends half the book diving deep into this recipe, as Short just explained with the respect, excellence, uh, customer integrity, performance, and execution. It was hard for me because I felt like because the book was so short and it was like written in this short form of you know just like here's the quickest little anecdote on this topic for it to really resonate and to understand any challenges that they had to the culture, right? Any challenges that they had to respect or excellence or one of these. Um, I don't think that he highlighted in too much detail. So, you know, like for outside in, it all makes sense to me, like this recipe of success and each of those was six characteristics or uh, cultural elements for the company. You, you wouldn't argue with any of them. I just didn't see too many examples of them being challenged and really having to choose one over the other or something of the sort. Did you see any of that? Like, did any of these resonate with either of you uh, more than the others? I think the only way he really talks about challenges is in the integration with EMC a little bit. And he basically says that he just is it's why he stayed and why he sort of took over that division and that he sort of claims that he was able to institute it within his division. And even, you know, I think they basically doubled in size because, you know, EMC had a lot of people that were working for them that were that were tackling very similar problems to, to data domain, but that they did not succeed in changing the EMC culture. Like it was too, you know, bureaucratic and engendered. And so that it just wasn't going to be possible to actually fix it in, in, in another place. I feel like he probably was more angry about that than he really let on. Like, I feel like it wasn't necessarily all that that great of an experience. I mean, he did stick around for 18 months. He didn't have to do that. But I mean, he did leave after after 18 months as well. And so I wonder if he was a little bit more polite about how things were than he might have been in, in some other sections of the book, because I did get the feeling that he did feel like data domain was kind of losing its culture. I mean, he claimed that he was able to hold on to it in that division. But I wonder if I don't even know if, if you know, that that division still exists within, I guess, EMC was was subsequently acquired by uh, by Dell as well. So now, now that they are part of Dell, even yeah. is there that that recipe culture in that that small space that that Slootman had carved out? Yeah, so it's so hard for me to appreciate because I think when we, for example, when we read the Pixar book, the culture matters so much, right? Like, you know, the the culture around creativity. And we talked a lot about how at Pixar, that culture allowed them to be more successful when at the same time, Disney, like not really ensuring that there was a good culture around creativity was kept on losing in the animation world at the same time. And for this, it's just so difficult for me to like really appreciate the what was sig so significantly different about the companies that allowed for one to be successful. And I know like data domain, it seems like really had the winning product and the winning technology. But just what what wasn't clear to me in the book was how much of that just already existed before Slootman arrived and how much was because of some aspects of like this recipe for success and the corporate culture that he helped create. Well, I think you're right. And for data domain, I don't think we'll ever really know the answer, but he did manage to do it two more times with ServiceNow and with with Snowflake. And so that is kind of an, an interesting track record to have had. And in all of those cases, he was not, you know, a founder. He yeah. sort of came came in after the fact and was able to, you know, very quickly increase growth for the companies and, you know, take them public and put them into, you know, stable financial positions um, and, you know, either sell or exit or have a, a very large public company. But 
you know, th- those all were good businesses before he joined also. So, you know, maybe, maybe he's just like, you know, great with connections and getting hired into these, these great roles for, with, with awesome technology. Yeah. And there's, there's something to be said for that too, but yeah, it is, it is an interesting difference between him and a lot of the other people that, that we've, we've read is that he, he never was a founder, right? We haven't exclusively read from founders, but typically yeah. we have been with people who've been with a, with at least one of their companies from the beginning. And so the fact that he's always sort of come in after someone else has developed this, you know, potentially breakthrough technology and he just sort of, you know, grows it from there and, and makes it into a, you know, very successful business. But, you know, is that him or is that, you know, the, the great technology that he, you know, hopped on board with? Well, I'll say that you get you get the extra credit for having done the homework on uh, what happened for him after Data Domain, and maybe the more interesting book would would be for him to write now, um, having done this three times of joining companies as a non-founder CEO and how he has successfully IPO'd them. I'd be curious, you know, what themes he could say across all three. Yeah, and I really my feeling has always been that the founders really set the tone. They create the corporate culture. But he feels so strongly about corporate culture. For example, here's another quote. This is from chapter 20, a recipe for success. I'd go as far as to say that company culture is the only enduring sustainable form of differentiation. I mean, can you make a stronger statement about how important company culture is? And yet he's not a founder. So is he really coming into each of these environments? and changing the culture or or transforming it in some way? Or is he just good at picking companies that have a good corporate culture to begin with? I don't think, to, to your question earlier, Eli, I don't think in 100 pages, there's enough nuance to actually know the answer to that. Um, I, I, don't, I think that there's really, this is his advice, and we're not really going to be able to debate it within the short amount of text that he, that he writes. I mean, he's not, we can debate it, but he can't debate it. There's just not enough room. Well, I would say that what he he doesn't talk about it too much in this book, but he he wrote a LinkedIn blog post about the Snowflake IPO, I think, where he, where he talks about the culture and and what he what he tries to implement. And I do think it's different from like the average company, and I do think he's he's sort of done it in three different places. And so one of the the big things is like a bonus focused structure that does not allow like all boats to rise. And so he basically allocates money to managers and forces them to give those bonuses in a differentiated way. So you really are creating this meritocratic compensation model where like the best people are getting paid more than the the lower performing people. And that's, you know, quite different from, from any company I've been at. I have not like had, had a, had a culture like that. I've had, you know, much more um, egalitarian systems where, you know, it was more of, I mean, there was meritocracy in terms of promotion. And then that was what drove, you know, your, your compensation was sort of, as you, you know, went up within the company, then you were making more money and, you know, high performers at each level were sort of getting paid equally. And I imagine that that probably does cause problems for some of the, you know, equity goals that a lot of, a lot of companies set now. So, you know, if you are having very different, you know, down to 0% bonus of some people, versus, you know, 100% bonus for other people, that is going to create like a, a different kind of system. And it does have the opportunity for, you know, bias to go into it. And, you know, again, is it who really is performing the best? He says it is, he says they put, you know, metrics on everything. And it really is about, you know, the company's success and your impact on that success. But, you know, at a large company, it, I imagine it can be difficult to assess each individual person's contribution to, you know, the whatever that goal may be, typically for him growth. I yeah I forgot that was was that in this book I feel like it was I read it two weeks ago I don't remember all those details but because I remember thinking my previous employer uh, implemented that system while I was there where for equity bonuses each you know division leader could only allocate it to up to fifty percent of the employees in the group so there was no they were not allowed to do the like okay everybody just gets fifty percent of their target or something like that they could only choose 50% of people. And I was there when that happened. And I just remember as like, you know, individual contributor employee being so happy with that change because up until then it had felt like there was just very little differentiation. And this is at a company where uh, it's a large corporate corporation. So promotions are difficult to come by because a promotion means that the, the role needs to exist. So there just felt like there was such little differentiation. And I was so happy with that change because it allowed for a level of differentiation. But it just, 
I don't know how large data domain was, but you know, I wonder how necessary things like that were there. And Kopech, certainly to your point, I'm I'm just curious. Does he go in and he brings the same culture every time whenever he enters a company? Or does he observe what the culture is and then he works to adapt the culture for the needs of that company? Again, I, I would just be curious what his experience has been uh, since doing this two more times. So yeah, he he does actually talk about it in in this book, in the, the performance chapter, I think it was, within within recipe. So uh, there's, there's two quotes I have. So one, uh, performance was also central to our compensation and all our execs, not just sales, had sales-like compensation plans. We had no management by objectives, MBO goal setting, and wanted all executives paid on the same metric growth of the business. We had hurdles on profitability, but the goal was growth and growth only, no dilution of focus. And then uh, talking about the bonus structure, we allocated bonus money to departments and asked the managers to allocate the money every quarter and produce a strong bell curve where the smallest bonus was 0% and the largest was 200 to 300%. So even more than I'd, than I'd said. It forced managers to stack rank their employees every quarter. If they wanted to shower their top talent with more money, they had to take it from the ones not in good standing. No peanut butter spreading where everybody gets 100% of his or her bonus. That is entitlement. A bad word in our culture. It, it goes on a little bit more. But yeah, I mean, I, I do think that that would have a very strong impact on the culture of a company and, yeah, you know, very clear signaling. And I think one of the, the big advantages uh, he, it gives is that you have to tell employees that, right? So it's awkward as a manager to, to tell someone that they're, you know, in the bottom 50%. But if you didn't give them a bonus, it's very clear to them that they are. And so you have to have that conversation and explain why they're getting whatever bonus they are. Yeah, he's so big on performance. Uh, another quote from that same chapter that, that you were talking about, not much should get in the way of a performance culture. Every incentive and behavior must help elevate performance. That sounds like somebody driven on just one thing. Anyway, so let's move on a little bit from corporate culture. We could have a discussion for hours about it probably. What are some key pieces of advice from the book? Which pieces of advice from the book really resonated with you? One piece that I think we we didn't quite get to in the sales section that I did think was really insightful was he said that you had to have a clear sense of where the money was is coming from. So for your intended customer, like how do they actually make their budgets and and their spending allocations? And especially what does that mean? Like what are what is your product displacing? So he talked about, you know, with data domain, they're growing the pie, yes, but they're also displacing tape. So that that to me, I think, was insightful because I think when I think about startups and like they're offering something new, everyone is like approaches it as though thinking that it's an entirely new market. But in in reality, there is somebody's going to lose. It's a zero sum game is actually like exactly terminology that he uses when he's talking about that. And there's value in recognizing that and understanding exactly what it is that you're displacing um, so that you can help your customers make those decisions. Yeah, that section was was really great. I think one of my key takeaways was he he quoted uh, John Madden talking to uh to Jim Harbaugh, so it's, I'll, I'll just read the quote. Madden told Harbaugh to keep his own counsel and make his own decisions because when you win, they can't hurt you, and when you lose, they can't help you. Jim Harbaugh of the Stanford Cardinals seems to have taken that advice to heart, judging from results. I found this advice priceless. You might as well spend all your time on winning. Nothing else matters. Of course, a good board wants you to do exactly that. It obviously doesn't mean you should blindly uh, bat away all opinions coming at you. But just try them on for size and merit and go from there. Keeping good counsel is strength. Caving in on perceived pressure is weakness. And so really that concept of, of keep your own counsel and make your own decisions, don't let the board control you or the markets, I think is, is really a, a good one and, and interesting that like as the CEO, you know, buck stops with you, you really need to, to own everything because if you win, then everyone's going to think that, you know, you were great regardless of whether you listen to their advice. And if you lose, everyone's going to think that you're a failure regardless of whether you listen to their advice. So you need to just own it. Um, I, I thought that was a really good uh, little piece of advice from from John Madden, I guess. <laughs> yeah, he, he did talk a bit about like, what is the role of the board versus the role of the CEO that, again, just in terms of little snippets of me better understanding this world, uh, I really appreciate it. The the other area that he talked about um, a bit that, you know, I, I enjoyed reading was he acknowledged that it takes work to be an authentic leader. And I will just say for me as being a female in the corporate world, I am just bombarded with 
quotes and articles and every piece of advice about how I'm supposed to be an authentic leader. And it all seems especially gendered and that this is a challenge that apparently only females have. And this was, I think, the first time that I have actually like seen this in a book written by a man, not in any way directed towards females. So I appreciated the acknowledgement there and understanding that everything I get is not always gendered about being an authentic leader. He talks about fail fast in the book, which is actually a really common saying in Silicon Valley today and among startups as well. Facebook famously said, move fast and break things, right? At least internally in their engineering culture. How do you feel that applied to data domain? Have you seen it applied anywhere in your careers? I don't think that this is even the first book that we've read this season that refers to fail fast. And I feel like we need, we could easily do a full episode on this idea of fail fast, fail cheap, because I think I'm personally scarred by this from being at a company that used it as a quote all the time, but almost used it as an excuse to not bring things to completion or just move move on without like finishing an analysis out or something. And I, I would just be like so curious to see how companies actually do embrace fail fast, fail cheap, but in a productive way. So yeah, I saw it in there and I was like, I've heard this before, but I, I don't think I've personally seen it applied very well. So at my last company, we had an internal... A-B testing system that we built out. And so that did allow our, you know, front end, you know, storefront teams to very quickly test ideas that we had for what could be like a cool customer experience with just like sort of limited hard-coded data. And then if it proved valuable, then, you know, my team would end up doing a lot of the, the backend execution to make that actually like a scalable thing that could work across the millions of products that we were selling. And so, you know, that was one example where, you know, much smaller investment to see, like put it in front of customers, see if they actually react and do, you know, make more purchases when we when we've done this on a very small scale and then, you know, spend the resources to actually make that, you know, work across the entire catalog. But I think it it really just depends on the the style of of company. I think with with software in general, people like to like like to think about this, but um I'm, you know, working at a bank now and in a lot of ways we we do do, you know, targeted development. We try to get, you know, limited MVPs that can, you know, give us learnings before we build out a, a full-fledged product. But when it is a banking system, like there's, you know, fundamental cybersecurity and things like that that you need to do that don't allow you to do this sort of quick iteration that you might be able to in, you know, other types of, of software development. Yeah, to be fair, I forgot to mention that my previous employer was a healthcare company. So fail fast, fail cheap is a bit harder to implement when you're faced with regulation and patient privacy concerns. Yeah, at my work, we like to think we're nimble. So we're willing to introduce new programs. And I'm actually working on a new program right now that we're, I, I work at a college that we're going to be introducing soon. And hopefully it has to go through a curriculum process. But even though we're pretty adept at changing our focus, which I think is one of our advantages in higher ed, that we're able to go introduce new programs more quickly than some other institutions because we're well aligned as an institution, we can't just fail fast once we get it out there. Because once you have students that come into that program, there's responsibility there to properly, if it turns out the program doesn't work, you need to sunset it carefully so that those students get their full four-year education in that program. So we can't fail fast. So some in some industries, I think, uh, Eli, like in healthcare, right? You can be nimble, but you can't necessarily fail fast. Would you say that's fair? Yeah, exactly. I, I feel like all that's a really good point about with students. Once they've, once they've started a program, you can't really renege on them. I'm curious how you all felt about the short format of the book. I know personally, I read this on an airplane, which I think in the intro, uh, he even says is kind of the intention of it. But did that work for y'all? I really liked it, the the format specifically, because I mean, it's I guess it depends on what you're expecting. I, I knew what it was supposed to be going in. And so I really enjoyed that it was basically a, a series of short things that I didn't even need to necessarily tackle in the order that they existed. I feel like some of these I probably will come back to in the future uh, because of the, the structure as well. But that being said, it's it's basically a pamphlet or like a series of blog posts rather than like a true book. So I could see some people being a little bit frustrated by it too. But honestly, I wish more people would write these kinds of books just like 
their key insights from their experience in business in like with one short anecdote for like each of those things. I think it's like actually a really useful format. It was hard for me to make a connection to data domain for two reasons. One, the book was very short, so there wasn't a lot of storytelling. And so I didn't really feel that connection. And I enjoy the storytelling in business books. Uh, Number two, I didn't feel like the person writing the book, Frank Slootman, was actually passionate about the product. He was passionate about some of his successes with data domain, but he wasn't passionate about the thing they were actually selling. And so that might be one of the reasons he didn't want to tell a five-chapter story about how the product got developed before he got there and how they continue to evolve it. I like people who are product focused and I like that's what I find interesting and I like the stories behind products and that really was not in this book almost at all. There was almost no focus on the product. There was no storytelling about the product. There was some very basic background on the product in the first few chapters and then we almost never heard from it again. Yeah, I agree. I think it was hard. It was hard for me to retain a lot of the advice uh, in the book without any of the storytelling. I usually like the storytelling in these books. Actually, it reminded me a bit of the Ross Perot book that we read because the Ross Perot book started out with great storytelling in the first few chapters, and then it just became quick fire advice in the second half of the book with almost no context. And I agree with Eli. Without having the context, it's hard, hard to retain because it doesn't become memorable. Yeah, and I think that's fair. I guess I think in like bullet points a little bit more from my background in consulting and whatnot. And so I kind of appreciate the like summary version actually being written directly by this businessman rather than someone, you know, taking away the 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 bullet point version. So I I mean I actually did like that that section of the Ross Perot book more than the the storytelling. So, you know, we just, you know, to, to each their own on, on what it is that you're looking at of in the, the business books that you read. I certainly enjoy the, the storytelling normally. I just thought that the Ross Perot one in particular didn't, didn't resonate as much with me. But I just want to share that I got a trivia question about Ross Perot correct a few weeks ago um, based on having listened to this podcast back when I was a listener instead of a co-host. So thank you all for <laughs> doing that Ross Perot book. What was the question? It, w- it was about the uh, Iran hostages. Oh, nice. But you know, David, with these bullet points, right, how can I trust them without having enough background information to feel like they really came from a place of knowledge and not just from a place of, uh, I'm just going to write them down and I'm talking down to you because I'm the great leader and here's all my advice for you, right? Like without having the story and the buildup and all the background information, it's hard to know why I should trust them or if they really make sense in a different context. Yeah, I I think that's fair. I think, again, for me with Frank Slootman and with Ross Perot, it's like their their personal histories that make me feel that like I can trust their advice, regardless of whether they, they've written about it. But I certainly respect that as well. And I do think it's true that the stories help to make them more memorable, too. And so when you do have the stories, it, it, it does resonate. But I do feel like Slootman did that a little bit. He just didn't do it in that like narrative arc that we've had in some of the other books, which I agree. I, I do enjoy that. I do think where it works and like for this, for this book specifically. So like to, to jump to the end, I feel like I wouldn't really recommend it except for, it felt like it would be useful to me if somebody was applying to work at a startup, because you have these quick bullet points that give you insights into if the company that you're looking uh, into joining is going to be successful. And it's maybe not the insights that you really want if you're going to go be the CEO of a startup because then you want more stories and you're going to challenge it more and there's going to be different opinions. But I actually do think being a quick read and if you're reading with that intention and you have like a company in mind and this is telling you bullet points of things you will want to look into of like, what is their culture like? And like, what is their product? And, you know, as I said, like, what is their sales channel and such, right? Like, I actually do think that it's helpful in that way, but you need to have like some intention as to why you're reading it. I think it's harder if you're just trying to read it for more general advice to keep in mind down the line in the future if relevant. So we already dove into the most important question then, which is, would you recommend this book? And it sounds, Eli, you explicitly just said you wouldn't recommend this book. David, how do you feel? I I would recommend it. I think it's really short and I think it's packed with uh, a lot of nuggets of wisdom. I think that I would not recommend it if you are looking for the story of data domain, though. I would recommend it if you're just looking for 
Frank Slootman's like series of blog posts on things that he finds, you know, successful as a, as a CEO. As you heard from the earlier question about the format, I didn't really enjoy the book that much. I think that if you are that very, very specific audience that you are right now the CEO of a high growth startup and you're not one of the founders and you're a couple years into it, then I think this is the perfect book for you. But uh, for most people who are probably listening to this, it probably doesn't make sense uh, as, as a good use of your time, in my opinion. And we'll probably link the LinkedIn blog post in the show notes, and that will give you a pretty good flavor for what the book is. So if you love that blog post, then you might want to read the book. If you hate it, then you definitely don't want to read the book. Um, and you probably get, I don't know, you know, 60% of the value of the whole book uh, in, that, in that blog post as well. All right. So let's talk about next month. Eli, you want to introduce our book? Sure. So I'm very excited. Next month, we're going to be reading No Rules Rules. Netflix and the Culture of Reinvention by Reed Hastings and Aaron Meyer. So I'm obviously uh, a huge consumer of Netflix, as I'm sure both of you probably are and many of our listeners. But more so, I've been fascinated by the strategy and culture of Netflix as a business case, how it's pivoted and grown over the years, and how it has seemingly introduced a new concept of culture that's driven by freedom and responsibility. So I'm excited to be reading this book written by Reed Hastings, the CEO, and Aaron Meyer, a professor at INSEAD. So look forward to uh, delving into this with y'all next month. Awesome. Anything that either of you want to plug and let listeners know how they can get in touch with you? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at David G. Short. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at emitch46. Desperately trying to think of something to plug this month, but I don't think I have something. And you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Dave Kopeck, D-A-V-E-K-O-P-C. I'm going to plug an essay that I wrote recently that actually was on the front page of Hacker News, good for me, called On Taking Criticism. And I'll put a link to it in the show notes. All right. It's been great having you with us this month. We enjoy having you every month. But don't forget to like us on your podcast player of choice or leave us a review. It really helps other people find out about the show. And we'll see you next month.